Before we begin today, I have some really fun stuff that I want to take care of. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we showed a photo of a group of uh, members from Oceana who are joining us every Sunday morning, and they join in their little seniors complex, and they gather together and worship with us, and we're thrilled that you join as you do. This past week, we got a photo from Yale Town House who are doing the exact same. So every Sunday morning, a group from Yale Town, uh, and you've got the picture up on your screen right now, and we just celebrate with you. And we're th so thrilled that you are able to join us every Sunday faithfully as we gather together. Uh, I know there are many others, you know, not only here in the Lower Mainland, but there are people who connect with us from Vancouver Island, people who connect across Canada and even across the world. And so wherever you're joining us from today, our prayer is that you would encounter God and you would be blessed for joining us. And may this serve you and minister to you as we journey together. Uh, you know, for us as White Rock Baptist Church, membership is important. We practice what we call closed membership. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't come to the church unless you're a member. Uh, it doesn't mean you can't partake in communion or cannot even fellowship and worship with us. No, not at all. Closed membership simply means that in order to be a member who votes on kind of the, the way the church operates and functions and the direction the church goes, in order to become a member, you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, which has been publicly declared through baptism. And so with that in mind, we take membership serious. You know, we, we understand the importance of coming together and entering into almost a covenant with one another as we minister together, as we serve together. Of course, over the last year, it's been a bit of a challenge to acknowledge new members. We've managed to do it as we've gone. But ordinarily, on a communion Sunday, such as today, our communion service, it would be then that we welcome new members. Uh, so today we want to do that, albeit a little differently. Ordinarily, we would have members come up on stage. Uh, we would hand them a membership certificate. We would pray for them. And, and we as a church would take it quite seriously within that moment. Of course, we're separated at the moment because of COVID, and we cannot gather together in person just this yet. But we still want to acknowledge that God is at work in our midst, and God is still bringing people into our congregation. And so this morning, it's my incredible, or today I should say, it's my incredible joy to welcome the following four people into membership. We'll have their photos up for you so that you can recognize them and acknowledge them. Uh, the new members that we're welcoming today are Hannah Juris, who is our children's ministry, our youth ministry coordinator, uh, and she's joined us on staff. We welcome Eric and Maxine Finch. Many of you already know Eric and Maxine. You've been touched by their ministry as they have just joined in and serve alongside us. Uh, and then finally, Donna Lee Kuntz. Uh, and this one is pretty awesome to me. You know, Donna is actually from Vancouver Island and lives on the island. Uh, but yet Donna has been joining with us long before video. Uh, when we still only had our audio stream on Sundays, she connected with us there, uh, and she's been a faithful part of our congregation, supporting uh, in so many different ways and sending things through. And so it's, it's 
an awesome privilege to kind of acknowledge that members don't always have to be right in the local area of the church. They can come from wherever. And so today, as we welcome Hannah, Eric, and Maxine, and Donna into membership, we acknowledge that it is God who builds his church. Jesus himself said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the church is not a building. The church are the people, brothers and sisters in Christ, who come together and covenant together to worship God, to serve one another, and to impact the world. And so we are thrilled that God is still building his church, even in a time like this. For those of you who call White Rock Baptist Church home, uh, you serve. This is your place of fellowship. This is your church. It's, it's your immediate answer when somebody says, well, where do you go to church or where do you attend church? Uh, as White Rock Baptist Church, if this is your home church, I'm going to invite you. Ordinarily, I would say stand, but that might seem a little weird sitting at home or wherever you might be. Uh, I'm going to invite you to pray with me for these new members and to pray for ourselves as we acknowledge God at work. So why don't we go ahead and join together in prayer right now. My Heavenly Father, I thank you that indeed you are building your church. And we know that as you build your church, you do so through people. And we need each other. You bring each one of us into fellowship, one with the other. And so God, today we thank you for adding to our number to building this, your church. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless these new members, that, Father, they would find a place of belonging, a place of service, where they would worship alongside us. And, Lord, remind us as an entire congregation how desperately we need one another. No one of us can do everything. No one of us has every single gift and ability. But yet when, God, you bring us together so we are able to journey together, to support one another, to encourage one another, to minister to one another, indeed, as we serve and impact the world. God, we continue to pray, would you build your church here in the lower mainland of White Rock and South Surrey? Indeed, would you build your church in the city, in this province, in this country, in this world? that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Father, we thank you, we worship you, and we love you. And together as your people, united in Christ, we pray and we say, amen. Amen. Indeed, may the Lord bless us and bless those who call White Rock Baptist Church home. Uh, you would have heard me a moment ago talk about communion services, so this is just a quick reminder that today is a communion service. I'm going to go straight from my sermon into communion. Uh, it's going to be a seamless transition, so if you don't have elements available for communion, uh, some sort of symbol for the body of Christ and a symbol for the blood of Christ, I would encourage you, push pause now and go and get it. And in case you missed it at the beginning of the service, generally the first Sunday of every month is a communion service. So go ahead and make sure you've got that, and then we'll go on from there. You know, last week I started by reading Ephesians chapter 1 verse 2. And Ephesians chapter 1 verse 2 is where Paul greets the church in Ephesus. And Paul simply says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Last week, we thoroughly examined that word grace. And I said last week that we would look at peace this week. If you missed out last week, make sure you check it out online as we examine what grace is and how God extends grace and how God sustains us through grace, how God saves us. And just this powerful picture of grace. And today, though, we want to look at peace. You know, I think when we talk about peace, it's one of those things that every one of us intrinsically understands. There's this deep longing for peace. It's almost like there's been a longing for peace since the creation of the world. Indeed, ever since conflict, ever since tension between humanity, ever since war, uh, there has been this desire for peace. Before her death, the columnist Esther Lederer, uh, she used to write advice to letters and response, and just before her death, uh, she received about 10,000 letters a month from people requesting advice. And so she was asked, uh, what was the most common question? Kind of what, what was the thing that people seemed to ask about? And when asked about that, she answered that people seem to be afraid or worried about something. They're afraid of losing their health. They worry about their job. They're filled with concerns about their family. People are racked out about their neighbors or they're frustrated with their friends. A great preponderance of letters describe relational ruptures and family friction. In short, she said, people are looking for peace but can't seem to find it. Peace is a prominent theme throughout Scripture. The word peace on its own is found in some 400 verses across the Old and New Testament. And that doesn't include synonyms. It doesn't include allusions to peace or the various shades and meaning and usage. However, important and prominent as it is in the Bible, peace is probably one of those things that seems so elusive to us. It's this elusive quality. We've been wrapped up and swept away in the hustle and bustle. Perhaps we're facing trials and challenges that have just been exacerbated by the, the whole COVID pandemic, and there's even more anxiety, even more concern, even more frustration at what's going on. And so when we talk about peace, we know we all want peace. And that's the question. How do we find peace? How do we experience peace? Well, I, I suspect it depends on what kind of peace you're talking about. You know, last week when we looked at grace, we discovered that the Bible uses the word grace in three main ways. Interestingly enough, peace is also used in three main ways in Scripture. And so today I want to briefly look at those three ways that the Bible talks about peace and then look at how we might experience and apply that in our lives. The first way the Bible talks about peace is the Bible speaks about peace with God. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. According to the Bible, when we read through Scripture, it is sin that has separated us from God. And so humanity lives at enmity with God. In fact, the Bible says the unsaved person is at war with God. The unsaved person is, is at variance with God, is at this distance. All of us are born as sinners. 
And even from an early age, every one of us chooses sin and chooses to run our own lives in our own way apart from God. Isaiah put it this way in Isaiah 53 verse 6. He said, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And because of that sin, because of that rebellion, because of that willful disobedience and desire to be the master of our own destiny, the captain of our own ship, so to speak, there is this enmity between God and the lost individual. And of course, the Bible teaches that God will not ultimately excuse sin. God will not take sin and simply sweep it under the carpet and ignore it. Sin has to be dealt with and it has to be judged because God is an eternally holy God who cannot allow sin into his presence. And the sinner who refuses to come to God in God's way is under that judgment. In fact, Jesus said it in John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Paul echoes this in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. Paul says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Peace with God occurs when the sinner starts to realize or acknowledges their own sin, repents from it, and is reconciled to God. When we turn to God in, through Jesus Christ, this is when we discover peace with God. My friend, this morning I, or today, I want to remind you, you will not find true and lasting peace until you meet the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. So the Bible talks about peace with God. The second kind of peace that the Bible speaks of is the peace of God. We begin with the peace with God, then we experience the peace of God. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 verse 7, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And of course, the, the peace of God might be defined as an inward spirit of tranquility and serenity of heart and mind that abides even in the midst of trouble and trial. Years ago, some artists were tasked with painting a picture of peace. And what was fascinating is two artists and their approach to this topic of peace. And one of them kind of chose to paint a picture of a young child floating in a small boat on a, on a still lake. And not even a ripple in the water. Just this calm and serene and quiet place. And, and that was their image of peace. Another artist chose to paint a raging waterfall with winds whipping and the spray all about. But overhanging that waterfall was a limb of a branch or a tree where a bird had built its nest. And in this nest, there sat a bird peacefully brooding over her eggs. And in, here in this nest, above this chaos, above the storm, this bird was safe from predatory enemies, was safe and shielded even from those roaring falls. And for me, I love that second image of peace. Peace of God is not the absence of trial. It's not the absence of that raging waterfall or problems uh, and, and stresses in our life. 
The peace of God is learning to remain at peace even in the midst of those trials. You know, the opposite of peace, which comes so naturally for so many of us, is anxiety and worry and stress in the midst of those perplexing circumstances. Those who trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are those who can truly experience the peace of God. For, for believers who are controlled or who live in the Spirit, I should say, it's one of the fruits of the Spirit, as we read in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and others. But of course, even we Christians can lose that peace of God if we're not living in the Spirit, not walking by faith, not trusting God, but are rather focused on the concerns, focused on the anxieties and the worries. I'll touch on that in a few moments. So we can have the peace with God. We can have peace of God. And the third kind of peace spoken of in the Bible is peace with others. Peace with humanity around us. You know, the writer to Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14 exhorts us and he says, Make every effort to live at peace with everyone and to be holy. You know, that kind of peace is to live at harmony with one another, to live at harmony with those around us. And, and it's experienced as we follow the biblical principle of relationships. It's God's plan that God's people live at peace and that they are peaceable with those around them. Of course, that kind of peace doesn't come with our own strength and power. It comes as we draw close to God in fellowship with the Lord. As we learn to be like Christ, to be selfless, to be others-centered, to be focused on those around us, to be filled with the Spirit and learn to respond to the Spirit's prompting. Peace with others is never manufactured. It is God producing His character in our lives and through us so that we can live peaceable and with harmonious relationships. So that's a, a very brief and almost cursory examination of the way the Bible talks of peace. Peace with God, peace of God, and peace with others through God. Now, of course, it doesn't help us a lot to just know a bunch of facts how do we actually experience this? How do we apply this? As that old preacher used to say, so then, how shall we live? So let's think about that. How can we experience these three types of peace in our own lives? And to do that today, I want to address them in the reverse order. Firstly, let's think about how to have peace with others. You know, the, the New Testament says that we as believers are to love one another, honor one another, be of the same mind with one another, accept one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, submit to one another, bear with one another, forgive one another, encourage one another, build one another up, and many other commandments that relate to treating one another. You know, as we believers put these one another commands into practice, that's what begins to pre produce peace and harmony. In fact, doing this is wise in God's eyes. This is why God encourages and, in fact, in instructs us to do this. I don't need to give you a three-point or a six-point or a seven-point or a ten-point list of how to live at peace with others. 
If you and I would learn by the Holy Spirit to simply apply the words of Scripture to those around us, we would discover peace. And my simple prayer for each one of us is that we would live as Christ's disciples, as those who know Christ as Savior, that we would live in that spirit with one another as we minister to each other. Let us live at peace. And the second thing is, how can we have peace of God or the peace of God? That inner tranquility of heart, that, that serenity even in the midst of trials and difficulties. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. I want to have a look at a couple of verses in Philippians chapter 4 from verse 6 to 9. And Paul speaks about the peace of God in this incredible passage. In fact, we find a bunch of keys of how to have peace with God if we would live and apply these few verses. And the first step that Paul mentions in Philippians 4 verse 6, the first step to having peace, the peace of God, is to stop warring. Paul begins in verse 6 by saying, do not be anxious about anything. You know, some translations include the words to be full of worry. And I love that word picture. I mean, you know what it's like when you've had this great big feast or this great big meal and you're, you're perhaps maybe a little bit over full and you kind of feel bloated and sluggish. You maybe feel like you need to take a nap or you're certainly not about to run or swim or do anything active. You know, when we're full, we, we can't really do a whole lot. And that's that image of when we're full of worry, we can't move properly. We, we feel a pain. And Paul says, do not be anxious. Don't worry about anything. The simple fact is worry is a waste of time. Worry is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it gets you nowhere. Worry will not change one thing. Furthermore, worry doesn't work. Worrying won't change the past. Worrying can't change the future. Worrying only makes us miserable today in the moment that we worry. Worrying about problems never solves them. It only keeps us in turmoil, which is the opposite of peace. Dare I say that worrying is a sin? Worrying goes against the counsel of Scripture. You know, O.S. Hawkins said this. He said, many of us assume that God merely looks upon worry with a frown. But the fact is, he strictly forbids it in his word. If you and I want to experience the peace of God, will we begin by turning away from worry and not being anxious for anything? The second key or the second step to experience the peace of God is to turn our cares over to God in prayer. And this is what Paul says. Paul begins by saying, do not be anxious or do not worry about anything. But he doesn't leave it there. He understands we need to replace that. Paul says in verse 6, in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And Paul says, we're to bring our concerns, we're to bring our burdens, we're to bring those anxieties to the Lord in prayer. Henry Blackaby in his book, Experiencing God, writes, As you no doubt have discovered, becoming a Christian does not make your problems go away. 
but it does give you an advocate to whom you can take every concern. Now, how true is those words of that famous old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pains we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. This is what Paul says. When burdens, when anxieties, when problems, when fears, when trials weigh us down, take them to the Lord in prayer. But notice, and this is the next key for victory and and discovering the peace of God. Notice what Paul says. We go to God in prayer with thanksgiving. Take the worry you're dealing with right now. Take that anxious thought. Take that thing that is weighing heavy on you, whether it's from the past week, month, or year, whatever it is. Take it to God in prayer and then thank God for it. I know that's a challenge. I know most of us, myself included, when I'm weighed down by a concern, the thought of thanking God for that seems absurd. Yet that's what Paul says. Thank God for that challenge. Thank God for that trial. Why? Because I have faith that God loves me. That God knows what is best. That God is doing something so much more incredible than I could ever imagine. And so I believe in faith and I trust God, even as Paul says in Romans 8 verse 28, that all things will work for good to those who love the Lord. You know, as has been said and sung before, trust the heart of God when you cannot trace the hand of God. And it's only in times of trouble that we can find the true measure of our trust in God, in His promises and in His word. You know, when you and I realize that our Heavenly Father truly loves us and cares for us, and and that when we know that He cares for us and it looks like bad is going on and it looks like things are falling apart, in that place, as a child of God, to know that He cares for me and He's working something so much better, well, then I can thank God. Even in the midst of my trial, even in the midst of my crisis, I can say, thank you, God, that you're taking me through this because you're building me. You're developing my faith. You're building my trust in you. And even though in the midst I'm concerned and it it weighs heavy on me, I know that you will do good and you will do the right thing. And we can trust and thank God even in the storm. And when we replace worry with thanksgiving as we go to God, Well, this is when we will experience what Paul says in the next verse. In verse 7, Paul says, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We will experience peace as we bring our concerns to God in prayer with thanksgiving. And then Paul goes on to add the next key to finding the peace of God. And it's to change our thought patterns. Even though we may experience the peace of God described in verse 7, if we're not careful, it won't be long before we're back to worrying again. And so that's why Paul tells us in verse 8, he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, 
whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So what Paul is saying is instead of worrying, replace those negative worrying thoughts with thoughts on God, with thoughts on His Word and on His promises. And there really is no greater antidote to worry than to replace it and replace our thoughts with God. In his devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest, Oswald Chambers asks this question, are you obsessed by something? And then he goes on to say that we should be obsessed only by the presence of God. In fact, he says, if I am obsessed with something, I will be thinking about it all the time, throughout the day and into the night. I'll even dream about it. Now, if we are so conscious of God's presence all the time, nothing else can get into our life. Not worries, not concerns. And what he's saying is the more we learn to dwell on the Lord and to think His thoughts, the bigger He looks and the smaller our problems are. So instead of being anxious and worrying about an issue, instead of focusing on that that we wish would change or end or whatever the case might be, The scripture reminds us, Paul says, replace that. Think about God. Think about his word. Think about his presence. Think about his spirit at work in us. And that's when we will discover the peace of God. And Paul's final step or final key to the experience and experiencing the peace of God is this. To learn to be obedient to the truth that we have been taught. Paul says this in verse 9, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the peace of God will be with you. And this is one of the primary reasons that God's people do not have peace. And no one will have the peace of God if we're living in willful disobedience to the will of God. If we're ignoring the word of God and we're trying to do life in our own terms, we will never fully experience the peace of God. And so Paul says, put the word of God into practice. Do what you've been commanded. Do what you've seen the apostles do. Do what you've seen Jesus do. Follow those commands and those examples. That's how you will discover the peace of God, even in trials and challenges. Peace with others the peace of God. And in closing, I want to consider how do we have peace with God? I said earlier that the person who does not know Jesus Christ as Lord, the person who is not saved, cannot have peace with God. They are in a state of enmity, separation with a holy God. So how then do do we find restoration and reconciliation? How do we discover peace with God. Paul gives this answer in Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God is obtained through Christ alone. Not any good works. There's nothing we can do that would appease God. There's nothing we can do that we can stand before God and say, well, God, you have to accept me because look, this is what I've done. Nothing we will ever do is good enough. Nothing we will ever do is what secures 
standing and peace with God. Everything has been done for us through Jesus Christ. Jesus paid the price. Jesus reconciled us to our Heavenly Father as He took that sin and that separation upon Himself on the cross. And so when Paul says that a person is justified by faith, Paul is saying there is no other way to come to God. There is no other way to experience peace with God. It is by faith alone, in Christ alone. The work of Christ on the cross. And this is what we celebrate as we gather around the communion table. As we practice this communion, Jesus, I think, understood that we would be prone to forget and that we would seek to keep on trying to earn merit, that we would continue to try and earn favor with God. And so we read in the gospel accounts as we gather around the communion table that as Jesus gathered with his disciples for that final meal before he would go on to be crucified and buried. Jesus is sharing this Passover meal, this meal of incredible significance and symbolism for the people of Israel. It's in the Passover meal that they were reminded of God's provision. Has God passed over the houses that had the paint on the doorposts? The blood, sorry, on the doorposts. And as the angel of death would pass over, so they were spared death and indeed found life. And so as they're sharing this meal together, Jesus at one point takes the bread. And as he takes this bread, he says to them, this is my body given for you. And of course, in that moment, the disciples don't really understand that. They don't really grasp, what do you mean your body given for us? But within a few hours, they would understand what that fully meant. Because within a few hours, Christ would be hanging on a cross. His body given in place of ours. So while we should be condemned and while we should suffer under the wrath of our own sin, Jesus says, no, I give my body for you. And Jesus took that bread and he broke it and he handed to them. And he said to his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. And so whatever symbol you have for the body of Christ this morning, I would encourage you to take it and break it. And remind yourself, this is the body of Christ given for you. And it might be this morning or today that you've never fully accepted or understood or appreciated all that is entailed in this gift of grace. The Bible says we simply receive by faith. And it might be that you've never received this by faith before. My friends, I would encourage you this morning, accept and receive the gift of grace and the gift of life through Jesus Christ. For those of you who perhaps have been Christians for as long as you can remember, and you've journeyed with Christ, as you take that symbol of Christ's body, I would invite you to pause and reflect and to pray, to thank God for this gift. If confession is needed, then offer a confession in your heart. Maybe the confession is to simply confess an anxiety or a worry and a lack of peace. And as we gather at this communion element, let us be reminded that we have peace with God and therefore we can have the peace of God. Jesus, I thank you for your body broken, given, sorry, your body given for us.
that in your death we might find life. Oh God, again, forgive us for seeking to go off and do our own thing, to seeking to try to earn favor and standing with you when there is nothing we can do. And I thank you, God, that it has been done for us through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that we can have peace with God because of this sacrifice. Thank you, Jesus, for this gift of grace. Amen. Let us eat the symbol of the body of Christ given for us. In the same way as they were eating together, Christ takes the cup and he says to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant written in my blood. And of course, for the disciples, they would have understood what that meant because they had their annual sacrifices of blood as animals were given as sin offerings on behalf of the nation of Israel. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, as would soon become apparent, the final sacrifice is in my life and my blood shed for you. This is the new covenant, no longer a covenant of works, no longer a sacrificial system. It is a covenant of grace of which I have given myself. And Jesus made it clear, nobody took his life. He laid down his own life for us. He could lay it down because he knew he would take it up again. And yes, as important as Jesus' death is, the resurrection is a part of it. Christ died and was risen back to life so that we would realize he does have the keys over life and death. And he offers to us life forevermore in his name. And so as you hold the symbol of Christ's blood given for you, why not pray together as we simply say, Jesus, thank you for this unspeakable gift of grace. Thank you for this incredible life-giving gift that, God, we do not get what our sins deserve. And instead, we get what we do not deserve. We get grace. And through grace, through Jesus Christ, we receive eternal life. And we receive peace with you. Thank you, Jesus, for this gift. Amen. Let us drink in fellowship together. Thanks be to God for this unspeakable gift. We can experience peace with God, the peace of God, and ultimately peace with one another as we journey in faith. As you go out into this week, my prayer is that you would discover that peace. I know every one of us has concerns on our hearts. Every one of us has things that are causing anxiety within us, whether it's failed relationships, whether it's financial challenges, whether it's a health concern, whether it's work, whatever the case might be, my prayer is that you would discover peace as you take that concern to God in prayer and petition with thanksgiving and may you indeed discover peace. God, our prayer is that we would discover the presence of Christ in the midst of our anxieties. Whatever it might be that weighs us down, whatever it might be that causes us concern or worry or anxiety, God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would learn to take it to you. 
to leave it with you and then to go and fill our minds and our thoughts with you, with your word, with your promises and that we would put into practice what you've called us to put into practice as we obey your commands and your word to us. And as we do that, may we experience, yes, peace with you. May we experience the peace of God. And may we experience peace with one another. For we ask this in your name, Jesus Christ. For your kingdom and your glory's sake we pray. Amen. Amen.